You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. So many nights on the town end with stories of merriment, joy, and good times, and yet... At the same time, there are many nights on the town that wind up with the complete opposite kinds of stories. When you add alcohol to a situation, unfortunately, the events of an evening can change at a moment's notice. Sadly, no matter how you look at this week's story, it is one of those stories on the awful side of that spectrum. A group of friends heads out to the bar, and one of those friends is never seen again. To make matters worse, now, over 12 years later, that night out is still the subject of a missing persons case that is widely believed to be a homicide investigation. A case where it seems that a lot of people know what happened and yet no answers have been given to the family and no charges have been laid. Hello, my name is Lance and welcome to episode 94 of Gone But Never Forgotten. Lots of explanations and no closure. The disappearance of Luke Jolly Durocher. North Bay, Ontario, Canada is a city that is located in northeastern Ontario. It takes its name from the fact that it's located on the north shore of Lake Nipissing. The city was developed as a railroad center, and it also had an airport that was used a lot during the Cold War. The city is approximately 300 kilometers away from both Ottawa and Toronto. It was established in 1891, and the 2021 census has the population of North Bay at 52,662 people. The unfortunate thing in North Bay is that for years now, the crime has certainly been on the rise in the city. North Bay is considered to be the gateway to the north, but in the past 15 years or so, they have seen their total crime, their violent crime, and their property crime all rise to rates that are well above the national average. There has also been a rise in disappearances and drug use and other crimes. North Bay is where Luke was headed with a friend of his to celebrate with a friend of theirs who had just moved to North Bay and into an apartment of her own. Luke was born on June 28, 1990, and lived in Timiskaming, Quebec, which is a city that is located on the south end of Lac Temiskaming on the upper Ottawa River. 
Timiskaming is also where the headquarters for the Algonquin Nation Wolf Lake First Nations Band Government is located. Luke was born to his parents Rob and Monique, and he had two sisters, an older sister named Priscilla and a younger sister. Over the years, it seems that everyone that has talked about Luke has had nothing but glowing things to say about him. He is remembered as someone who had a gentle spirit and treated everyone that he met with respect and care, and he also loved music and loved to make everyone around him laugh. One of the things that stood out the most about Luke was the fact that he had started to play music at a very young age, receiving his first guitar as a gift around the age of three. Luke told everyone that he would make it one day and he would be famous. His dream was to become a musician and a songwriter, and he was very active with a band. Luke and his friend Brett would make the trip to North Bay to celebrate, and when they arrived, Brett remembers thinking that the area around the apartment that their friend was renting was a little run down and rough around the edges, but of course, the celebration would go on. The apartment was located in a home at 683 Sherbrooke Street that had been turned into four different units. The friends would all get to drinking, goofing around, and playing games like beer pong while obviously drinking a fair bit of alcohol. As the night went on, the group of friends decided that they were going to move the party to a bar that was located downtown and was called Cecil's Brew House and Kitchen. The group would get inside of the bar, but as they looked around, they realized that Luke was actually not with them. This is where things get a little bit strange for me, because... Nobody seemed to go out to see what was going on with Luke, and instead they stayed inside of the bar. This part of the story still seems to me like something is missing, as I've never heard or read anyone really explaining why they didn't panic when one of their friends was no longer with them. I don't understand how there wouldn't be some sort of panic or some kind of concern when a friend seemingly disappeared in a city that he seemed to not be all that familiar with. Closed caption television would show that Luke was denied entry to the bar. Many people over the years have said that he was denied entry because he was too intoxicated, but now, 12 years later, police say that there has never been an official reason given as to why Luke did not go into or get into the bar. That CCTV would show Luke at 11.54pm getting turned away seemingly and then wandering off down the street by himself out of frame. That would be the last time that Luke was seen or captured on video. The last time that there was any communication with Luke was at 8.51pm when he texted his father to see if he could get a ride home from North Bay the following day. That night, when everyone returned to the apartment, they were a bit perplexed that Luke was not there, but seemingly there was still not a massive amount of panic until the following day, when Luke didn't turn up for the trip back to Timiskaming by bus, as it was planned with Brett. 
That's when calls and texts started to happen between Brett and Luke's family, and everyone started to worry that something may be up. Luke's mom was the first person who was determined to call the police and file a report, but in the end, because it had only been one day, the family decided to hold off and give Luke some time to possibly resurface. Over the ensuing days, however, nobody heard from Luke, and he also missed his younger sister's birthday, which was incredibly out of character for Luke, and his family realized then that something was certainly awry. On the Monday, three days after Luke was last seen, his mom would head to North Bay, and her first stop was at the apartment where Luke's friend lived. There she would find Luke's phone, which had been left on a speaker, his hoodie, his jacket, his keys, and his glasses. All of those things left behind at the apartment. Monique would take those belongings to the police and officially report Luke as missing three days after Luke was last seen. From the very beginning, even though it had already been three days since anyone had heard from Luke, the family felt as though the police were not all that concerned with the case. The police would tell the family that they were sure that everything would be fine. They seemed adamant that Luke must have gone off with a girl that he met while out partying or something like that, and there was nothing to worry about. The family was incredibly off-put by this, though, because... That would be incredibly out of character for Luke, but that didn't seem to matter to the police. The officers seemed to have painted Luke's case in a certain way right from the get-go. A week after Luke was last captured on the CCTV, his bank card would actually be found by a passerby in a snowbank. The tracking of Luke's account and card showed that the last time that it was used was the day before he disappeared and he had taken $20 out of his bank account. Police would put together a ground search to see if they could find any sign of Luke or if they could find anyone who may have information for them, but seemingly they came up empty. It took six weeks before the police would go and do a search of the apartment and home that Luke had been staying at. Six weeks. That's just wrong to me. Regardless of what was going on here, it really seems ludicrous to me that the police would take six weeks to look at the apartment where he was staying. After they searched the property, they never did release any information to the public or to the family about what they found or what they did not find when they did that search. At that point, it really seemed like either the case ran cold, or the police just stopped communicating with everyone, or they just stopped looking too deeply into the disappearance. Either way, there was very little in terms of facts that came out until a few months later when a tip came out that seemed like it may actually break this case wide open. A 31-year-old woman would come forward, and she would say that Luke had been murdered, and they gave the police details about what had happened and where Luke's body was disposed. 
Unfortunately, after searching in North Bay and Timis Kaming and investigating the claims and looking for evidence that would corroborate this tip, officers would deem that the tip was, in point of fact, made up, as well as all of the details. The woman herself would eventually be charged and sentenced to a jail term for obstructing police and public mischief. Many people, including the family, believe that her false claims really halted this, this entire case for multiple reasons. First off, people seemed a little more concerned about coming forward with information because if they weren't certain that their information was accurate, they may fear jail time for coming forward with information that was deemed to not be correct. More importantly, though, the information that the woman came forward with became a part of the narrative around the case, became a part of the lore, so to speak. And investigators have said that a lot of the tips that came in after her false claims fed off of the information that she had come forward with and made up. And this made it a lot of work to sift through and find out what leads were even worth investigating. Over the years, because of the dissatisfaction with the ways that investigators were working the case, there seem to have been at least two other efforts that have come together to try and crack the case or get the evidence needed to pursue people of interest. Luke's dad, Rob, has been looking into the case relentlessly over the years, and in recent years he's even teamed up with Ellen White, who is a private investigator. There also has been an investigation that has been taking place led by a group called Please Bring Me Home, which has been given permission to try and crack the case from his mom, Monique. Even though the case has not been solved, it seems that nearly everyone in North Bay knows about this case and has an opinion on what happened. It's been deemed that Luke was not the type of person to just up and leave his life behind, and it's also been noted that Luke was not seemingly depressed or suicidal, and he didn't have those markers in his past at any point, neither. Everyone has settled on the fact that Luke ran into foul play and likely is no longer alive. Through the years, there has been seemingly a lot of evidence that has been pieced together via interviews, investigation, tips, and every other kind of information. Approximately 90% of the tips that have come in have relayed a similar story as to what happened on that night. It seems to come up enough that the story of what unfolded was something similar to this one tip that came in. The tipster said that the murder happened right there on Sherbrooke Street, and that Luke had left the bar and then got into some kind of physical altercation on Sherbrooke Street, and he was killed in that altercation. When pressed as to what caused the argument, the informant said that they had heard that the argument was over $20, which, as I mentioned earlier, was the exact amount of money that Luke may have had on his person, as that is the amount that he had taken from his bank account the last time that he withdrew. In response to the tip, Rob and Ellen were able to get permission to again look into the apartment 
and a crawl space at the property when they were given permission by the current owners of the home. When they were about to give up searching, Ellen called another tipster, and that person told her that there was a hatch in the floor that was in one of the corners, and that was significant because that was where the body had been temporarily placed after Luke was killed. There would be no evidence found there, however, that did seem to again corroborate the stories that have come forward over the years because they did find the hatch at the back of the crawl space. There are many people who actually believe that the truth is known in this story and that furthermore there is even enough evidence to press charges in the case against the guilty party or parties. And yet, no charges have been laid as of present time. Some people who have come forward have even said that the police made errors in the beginning of the case that they cannot come back from. When I heard that, I wondered if someone was given protection very early on in this case that maybe shouldn't have been, and as such, police may have found themselves up against an unsurmountable problem. But that's just my mind wondering what the police could have possibly done that may have jeopardized everything. Even though everyone seems to be of the belief here that the police fumbled, they are adamant that they have spent hundreds of hours investigating this case. Investigators have said that even though the family is involved in many ways with a case like this, there are things that are said and done that even they are not made aware of for obvious reasons. On the five-year anniversary of Luke's disappearance, there was a $50,000 reward put up for any new information in Luke's disappearance, but that still stands to this day and is available for anyone who can help to get answers for Luke's family. As recently as March of 2023, Brett, an administrator with Please Bring Me Home, has said that he had a lot of information that he planned to bring to police. That information included new eyewitnesses to the murder, the disposal of Luke's clothing, and the disposal of Luke's body. There also have been new accounts of a person admitting that they were the person who murdered Luke, as well as the belief that there is a mental health professional who has had the entire situation relayed to them while caring for the person who was responsible for the murder. To me, that is a lot of information that was seemingly had, and as of recording time, that was five months ago, and we still have no extra information on this case. Sadly, this is where the case is left sitting today. As I said earlier, it seems as though most of the people investigating this case, and certainly plenty of informants, seem to believe that they know what happened to Luke, and how it happened, and who is responsible. The problem seems to come down to the last part, having enough information that is factual through evidence to lay any charges. It feels as though this case, even though it is 12 years old, is very close to being solved. So, if you know anything about what happened or what may have happened to Luke Jolly Durocher, please reach out and tell someone. 
Luke was 20 years old and 5 foot 8 inches tall at the time of his disappearance, and he weighed approximately 150 pounds. Luke had dark brown or blackish hair and brown eyes. It's believed that he was last seen wearing jeans, black sneakers, an American Eagle peacoat, and a very distinctive purple belt. If you do have any information that may be pertinent in this case, please contact the North Bay Police Services at 705-497-5555, or you can email them at nbpolice at northbaypolice.on.ca and quote case NB 1100489. Or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS, or you can go online at www.canadiancrimestoppers.org forward slash tips. Hopefully, I can report in the very near future about the resolution of this case and the closure for the family that is so dearly needed. If you can help them find out once and for all what happened to Luke, please do something. Before I end the episode, I do want to share some exciting news. We had a new patron sign up to support the show over on Patreon.com. As the the podcast grows, we are trying to make that home base for the podcast where we can chat about our episodes and our thoughts and everything GBNF. Our new patron signed up as a supporter of the podcast, which is a level where he will be able to get episodes ad-free when we do have our episodes with ads, and it also gets him a shout-out here on the podcast. Just a reminder that if you sign up on any of the levels on Patreon to support the show, that money goes right back into the podcast and efforts to make this thing bigger and better. So, you become a goner and you become truly a part of the GBNF team. Without further ado, the new patron for Gone But Never Forgotten is James Harrington. First and foremost, James, thank you so much for supporting the show. We're glad that you found us, and we are glad that you decided that we are worth your time and your support. Julie and I started a thing where new patrons would sign up and we would shout them out and guess what they do while listening to the show. James is from California, and from what I can tell, he appears to be someone that's into trying new things, learning new things, and seeing new things. So, I'm going to gather that with that zest for life, James must be a truck driver. I'm sure that he sees and comes across all kinds of interesting things while he travels up and down the highways listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Let us know how close we came to the truth, James, and again, thank you for supporting the show. With that, I will close the episode by thanking all of you for listening, as always, to Gone But Never Forgotten. See you next week, and of course, don't forget to be better.